I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys. You know what, Jesse? What, Dennis? To quote the landmark film, Gone with the Wind, as dangerous as that is these days because of its political incorrectness, I don't know nothing about baptizing no babies. Oh, I thought you were going to say something else. No. <laughs> Frankly, Jesse, I, I don't, don't give a damn. Yeah. Well, you know what? I know you pour water over the head and persons of the Trinity are named. Just baptizing you, kid. And that works. But apparently, Chris, our super genius, mm-hmm. quiz loser, is now the baptizer, super, uh, what, superior? Yes. What? Yes. Mm-hmm. No. Yes, baptism. There's a, there's a revision to the right? There's a re- revision. Infant baptism. Yes. And is this in effect already? Uh, it Sort of. Okay. Yeah, so there's, uh, not, to, not to back up too much, right? But so we had, we had the council. The, there was the word. In the, the beginning was, was the word. <laughs> there were all those preconciliary documents. Yeah, so yeah. let's go back to Prosper Garrett No. So uh, following the council, 1962 to 1965, and its constitution on sacred liturgy, so then all of the, we, we've done these. All the uh, rights have to be baptized. Right, all the I rights mean, have to be updated. revised. Yeah. yeah. And so some of the first ones to be revised were parts of the Roman Missal, but also the uh, rite of baptism for children, which came out in Latin in 69, I think the first English edition in 1970. And really, I mean, there's some minor tweaks along the way, but kind of been using that translation of the rite of baptism of children for the last 50 years until there's uh, a recent revision that is uh, now available for use uh, since the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord, February 22nd Seems of 2020. Seems And was this yeah. also retranslated according to Liturgium Authenticum? Yes, okay. yes. Uh, well, see, this is, what's, this is what's one of the things that's new about it is not only is the translation done according to the principles of Liturgium Authenticum, which I think we're going to do some podcast on mm-hmm. that sometime, but um, you remember this document called Manium Principium? Yes, that was Pope Francis's. Uh, Pope Francis's motu proprio. About recognitios and stuff, right? Right, yeah. It's a little confusing, but it says, um, you know, on the one hand, that translations are really the jobs of the local bishops' oh, this conferences. Is the one where they... He kind of sent it back to the bishops and then... Well, right, he said bishops... But, it's, but we it's also principally, have final say. Yeah, well, s- sort of. He says the bishops do the translations and the Holy See just uh, confirms them. But if the bishops are going to do changes to the ritual structure, add anything or change anything, then it takes a little bit more oversight from the Holy See and the Congregation for Divine Worship. That's the uh, confirmatio. Or the Got it. Confirm... Uh, or, no, confirmation is for, um, what do we say, translations. Uh, it's the uh, uh, approval that uh, is supposed to be given for ritual changes. So this rite of baptism is a little bit of both. The translation is different, plus there's some minor changes to the rite itself. And so this uh, could be used as early as February 2nd, but it becomes mandatory uh, on Easter Sunday this year, which is April 12th. This, uh, or, now it's called not rite of baptism of children, but order of baptism of mm. children. So 
In the, uh, let me just uh, give you a little context here. So one of the things that's different about this is um, that you can have baptism within Mass or outside of Mass. So Jesse, how many kids do you have now? Seven. Three. Oh. Three, yeah. So of those three, they, have they been baptized? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, all within Mass, all outside of Mass? A little all bit of both? outside of Mass. All outside of Mass. Okay, one of the things that the new order of baptism of children kind of pushes for is, first of all, baptism to be on a Sunday, because Sunday is the day that symbolizes the Paschal mystery, and that mystery is what is in fact happening in baptism, uh, but also even during Mass itself, be- because oh. <laughs> because uh, there's a greater uh, connection with the, with the church who's there, there's a greater connection to the Eucharist, So Dennis can speak about this probably. The architectural relationship between the font and the altar has to be present somehow in terms of materials or accesses or whatever because baptism terminates at the altar. It's kind of a gateway to the altar and the rest. And so there's this great encouragement in the order of baptism of children, not only to have baptism on a Sunday, but even to have it in the context of Sunday Mass. Grown from lots of people in the church. Yeah, so it makes – it actually is a – who says liturgical ritual documents aren't funny? So it goes through this uh, little apologia about uh, why you should do this in the Mass, but the very last line is, nevertheless, this should not happen that often. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's really confusing to me. Well, Dennis nailed it. We, we, I was giving a was part of a workshop uh, back in the diocese, and we were presenting some of this stuff, and one of the deacons uh, uh, told the story about being at a parish outside of our diocese, and the priest announced at the beginning, and we're going to have a couple of baptisms this morning. And he said it was just, you could just hear the groans. Just the, the air just went out of the building. I like, know. We oh, should be excited uh, more Christians are being added to the mystical body, and instead it's like, oh, but the Packers are on. Yeah. No, you're right. We should. And But I think what the right is trying to account for is the fact that this is a good thing, but... People remain people, and we shouldn't, you know, we should uh, take account for that. Mm-hmm. So I think some places, again, we're a very rural diocese, which may be different from, you know, maybe the suburban dioceses, but I hear some pastors say, listen, uh, the first Sunday is when we'll have baptisms during Mass. If you want it during Mass, this is the Sunday we'll, we'll do that. Otherwise, it's going to be outside of Mass. But anyway, so that's really, in, in, the, in the first uh, uh, rite of baptism for children, it just kind of had... Uh, just very few instructions about how this is to happen. Well, what the USCCB has done in this order of baptism of children is they've taken those very sparse introductory comments and they've actually put it in the, con- they've kind of fleshed it out into a ritual, to an order, you know, with rubrics and texts and all of the rest. So now there's no guesswork about what is to be done or not. So if done. the USCCB did this, does that mean it's only operative in the United States? Yes. Okay. Right, because our bishop's conference had to send this to the Holy See for, you know, confirmation. So this is not the universal practice of the universal church. No, no, it, uh, it is, but... What's different about it is they've spelled it out. Okay. Yeah, so it's not really anything new necessarily. It's just making clearer what's happening. This is where I want to take this this podcast. I mean, because, you know, when we started to use the, the new missile nine, ten years ago, I mean, there were some real noteworthy changes that people had to be aware of in the language and, and you know, some of the rubrics, mostly in the language. Here, and even uh, in the in the new order of... 
matrimony. There were some additions. There was a, you might remember we talked about this. There's the the lasso and the aras and yeah, the, the coins and uh, uh, other acclamations that were inserted. And there's some of that here, but there's really not too much that's different between this edition and the one that came out in 1970. Then okay? why are you wasting our time, Chris? Because it's an occasion, Dennis, to kind of revisit some of those things that have always been there, but have kind of been oh. overlooked. So it's not a waste of our time. Well, it's no, a good use no, of our time. No, What I think is that, you know, when you remember, do you remember those uh, <clears throat> Sacrosanctum Concilium podcasts that the we did? The best podcast we ever did. Yeah. Well, and even these uh, post-conciliar podcasts on these instructions, um, I don't know which one it is, Treza Pinkanos, uh, perhaps, where it was talking about this principle from number 50 in Sacrosanctum Concilium, that what the council was trying to do was to simplify the rights where they've become confused. They wanted to eliminate unnecessary duplications that have come in, and they wanted to restore and recover things that have been lost over the passages of time. Sounds good. And so what they did these very things to the right of baptism. But what has happened, I think, uh, since we've been using this book over the last 50 years, we've kind of, wittingly or not, taken it upon ourselves to muddle things that were once simplified, to in reinsert things that had been eliminated, or to eliminate things that the council desired to have restored. So get on the stick is what so we're talking about. So get on the here. stick. And so what I want to do is look at five different things of the right that are worthy of our reconsideration in this mm. order of baptism of children. Number one. Number one. Right. So um, I don't think that effect was yeah. what you wanted it to be. But <laughs> And Jesse, how, let's see. Um, Azalea? Azalea. Azalea. How long ago was she baptized? Uh, about four months ago. Four months ago. Okay, so some of these things will be of interest to you. I mean, you probably have baptism more freshly in mind than uh, any of the rest of us. So sure. see how some of these uh, measure up. You know, and I suppose to kind of set this table, right, this is, this is something that I learned as a student at the Liturgical Institute, is that, you know, and of course you didn't have to come to the LI to learn this, but you can Don't study the... Yeah. You can study the church's liturgical rituals from any number of different angles, right? So some people like to look at things in terms of ecclesiastical power politics, right? With manum principium, well, who's in charge of these things now? Is it the pope? Is it the congregation? Is it the local bishops' conferences? You know, they've been going back and forth about who's really in charge of these books. So you can look at this from the political angle. You can look at it from history, and I remember David Fagerberg would say things like, you can know all there is to know about the post-baptismal anointing in the 4th century East Syrian church, but when it comes time for Sunday morning to baptize the new Weiler baby, who really cares about any of that? You know, <laughs> Jesse doesn't, and the pastor doesn't, and the rest. Uh, you can look at these rites through uh, the code of canon law and the prescriptions that they have, and that gives you some fundamentals. But the key perspective to look at, understand, and celebrate the sacrament most properly is the sacramental is lens. The sacramental lens, right? So in Sacrosanctum Concilium number seven, it says uh, the liturgy is an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. Christ. So this is your friend uh, Lambert Baudouin. Mm -hmm. uh, in the liturgy, the sanctification of the man is signified by signs perceptible to the senses 
and is affected in a way which corresponds with each of these sites. In other words, it's all about the signs, the symbols, and the sacraments. And Jesus. Because that's where Jesus and uh, Azalea Weiler are about to be introduced, is through this medium of signs and symbols. So, so that's something new to this? or No, it's not. But okay. that is, that's... Those are the type of lenses you need to be wearing if you want to read the right right. All right. Celebrate let me, let me the right Let me put those right. on. My liturgical okay, so monocle. On. So I want to look at sacramentally five different elements of the order of baptism of children to see what they look like. Number one. Number one. Number one. Number one. Number one. What are you right. doing? So you know in a sacrament there is this invisible part, this mysterious part that's not fully revealed and it's mm-hmm. just waiting to express itself in sacramental signs. Right? Yes. So the first one has to do with the uh, door. And again, some of these things we've talked about before, but they're, it's worth looking at them again with this new rite. So the reality of baptism, this is what the catechism says, is that it's the basis of the whole Christian life, the gateway to life in the spirit, and the door which gives access to the other sacraments. Yeah. So if that's the unseen reality of baptism, hmm, how might we express that to the senses? Gates. Start, yeah, or you start at the door to the church. Doors. You could do this a couple of ways. Yes, you can either build a font and put it at right the at door. the door, right? And you've... Have you you've uh, you've been consultant on many churches that have done this? Have you not? Mm-hmm. Okay, but in the olden days, there used to be one baptiz- baptismal font in the whole city, and it was a baptistry, and it was a building, and it was separate from the cathedral. And so you were outside the church until you were baptized, and then that's why it was a separate building. And then you process triumphantly into the heavenly city, across the street into the church. The very the, the only one I know of, a very famous one, is in uh, Florence. Yeah, that's not the also one Pisa. Pisa right next to the, the Leaning one, that's Tower. That's one where they have the tower, right? Yep. Yeah, this fantastic uh, uh, baptistry that's not even in the church. It's outside the doors of the church. There's actually a real beautiful one in uh, the cathedral in Rapid City, South Dakota, that I think is I took note of. Anyway, but right, you have the font at the outside the door. You have the font either right in the door, or if you don't have a font in the door, the right at least begins at the door. Okay. So here's what the rite says. The priest or deacon celebrant wearing alb or surplice and stole and even a cope in festive color goes with the ministers to the door of the church or to that part of the church where the parents and godparents are waiting. And he says, what do you want? <laughs> yeah, well, he does. But the point is, is that they at least start this stuff at the door of the church. Now, in giving these uh, you know, workshops, even to priests and even to deacons and especially to laity, I'd say most of them say, oh, I never knew that. Or really? That the baptism is supposed to start at the door? And this was always in the right, just now always it's in the right. out with new vigor. Yes. Okay. See, but it's, it was kind of tucked away in the introduction. And now, again, what the USCCB has done is they've ah, spelled it out explicitly. Like within the right itself. Within the right Almost itself. like their rubrics. Ex- precisely. Okay. Precisely. So it has little red rubrics, and then it has the actual text. Got it. Okay. But this is very similar to, if you know anything about RCIA, a person enters the catechumenate through the rite of acceptance, and it begins in the same way. The priest meets the adult uh, candidates at the door of the church, and he says, What do you want? What do you want? Who are you? What do you want from God's church? Baptism, and he says, Well, that's a horse of a different color. (laughs) And then he uh, signs them with the sign of the cross. This is even at RCIA. And then he asks the godparents to sign their senses as well. And then they process into the church. Even at the end of your life, when you die, where's it going to start? 
At the door of the church. At the door of the church. And what's going to happen is the priest is going to say, in the waters of baptism, so-and-so died with Christ, and he's going to sprinkle your body or the coffin with holy water. And then what's he going to do to your coffin? He's going to vest it in an alb. Oh, yeah. yeah. The pall. He's going to put the pall in it. And then you're going to process into the church. Roll it up the aisle. Because this is kind of your paschal mystery into the heavenly church now, Mm. right? So this, um, this is an important aspect, architectural sign of the rite of baptism, the doors of the church. If you want to say to the, to the mother and the father and the family and the participants, hey, little junior here, little Azalee, is now walked through the doorway into the mystical body of Christ, you do them a great favor by starting at the door of the church. And hopefully your door actually looks worthy of the dignity of that activity, right? Not just yeah. ripped yeah, off t- Burger King and thrown in your church. We talked about the importance of going through the, the, the door of the church. Not just the side or in the sacristy. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, again, on this campus where we are now, the most magnificent set of doors on the whole campus are the front doors of Immaculate Conception. My office. Oh, sorry. chapel. Yeah, okay. Good. All right. Let's take another one. Jesse, I know you like this one. Is this number two of your this five is, points? Yeah, this is number two. This number is the two, second two, of five two, points. Two, two, two. Uh, processions. It has to do with processions. Uh, it says, baptism, and here against the catechism, signifies and actually brings about, this is what sacraments do, death to sin and entry into the life of the most holy trinity through configuration to the paschal mystery of Christ. Yes. The res sacramenti of everything liturgical, and especially baptism, is this paschal mystery, this passage. Uh, and so, um, think, well, think about that time of year, the paschal triduum, right? That's where the paschal mystery is most magnificently made present. So think of all the processions that are in Holy Week. Mm -hmm. You got the procession with palms. You got the holy procession with gifts for the poor and the the procession with the Blessed Sacrament. Good Friday, the procession to venerate the cross. Easter Vigil, the procession into the church, right? Because the reality is this process of passing over to heaven, the church tells you to move around. Well, so too uh, at the order of baptism of children. This is what the rite says. After the reception of the child at the entrance, quote, a procession to the appointed place takes place. That is to say, into the nave. Right? Okay. Then it says, after the anointing before baptism, so there's this uh, liturgy of the word, uh, litany of the universal prayer and litany of the saints and a prayer of exorcism, then this anointing, then it says... Um, they proceed to the baptistry, or if circumstances suggest, to the sanctuary, if that's where the, it's going to take place. Then after the, the baptism with water, there's that ephatha, and there's, it says, a baptism, a procession to the altar in which the lighted candle of the newly baptized child is carried. It, even at the end of the rite, it says, if it's the custom in this place, the parents present the child to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Hmm. So just map this out in your mind's eye. Door, ambo, font, altar, Blessed Virgin Mary. You're moving all around these places to sacramentalize and signify the fact that little Junior here, little Azalea, is now in this paschal process of traveling from earth to heaven. She heard the word, right? To the ambo, to the baptism, to the altar. It's sort of like little preparation for the ritual of mass itself right in the church hear the word go to the altar i mean get baptized go to the altar yeah well and you know we said before there's a sprinkling right (laughs) 
Yeah, That's baptism right. terminates at the altar. And so if it's in Mass, this really stands out very clearly. But even outside of Mass, if you're not going to celebrate the Eucharist, you at least walk over to the altar, and that's kind of the, the terminus. Right there. All right. All right. Okay, let's take a third one, and this is water. All right. Uh, the washing with water and the word of life, which is what baptism is, cleanses human beings from every stain of sin. Well, if that's the unseen reality, then describe the water that's to be used in... Spotlessly clean. Spotlessly clean. New? Right? Does it have to be new holy water? Uh, it, it has to be... They don't use the, the word uh, new, but they do use the word uh, living water sometimes. And this... Uh, this you heard... Like uh, bacterium and... <laughs> Well, you've heard, uh, if you've heard David Fagerberg, you've heard about Aidan Kavanaugh. Of and course. He, and he has this little... Or Aidan Nichols. He's had... No, I'm the Aidan Nichols oh, guy, right. all right? Uh, Kavanaugh has this quip that living water does not mean that things are living in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay? But yeah, if, if in truth, baptism gives you enlightenment, okay? And even one of the church fathers, I think, described water as uh, liquid light, because it's one of the few liquids that kind of is a carrier. It's translucent. You know, it's, it carries light. And so to be cleansed with water is to be enlightened uh, and all of the rest. Yeah, so the water has to be uh, clean. And in the, um, I don't know, uh, apparently in the, uh, in the rites in the extraordinary form or in the preconciliar uh, baptismal rite, the holy water, this is what one of the priests was telling me, is the holy water was made by pouring into it sacred chrism and oil of the catechumens, which sounds good, but then what happened is that you'd end up with kind of this oil, slick. This oil on the top of it. Now, this question I don't know the answer to. I think that water hung around for the whole year. Certainly mm. through the Christmas season, all right? So if that was around the whole year, imagine, you know, you're being baptized in this water, you know, that 10 months ago had all this oil poured into it, and I think it wasn't as uh, uh, fresh and clean and pure as uh, one might uh, wish. I mean, obviously, it's That's why you always get baptized in the beginning of the liturgical year. That's, that's right. That's natural family planning right then there. You, then, <laughs> just like anything, you got to get your oil changed. <laughs> but wow. what, uh, I mean, think about how, I don't know, uh, th- there's another analogy that goes on here. Is when the when the water is blessed, at one point there's what's there's this part called the epiclesis, right, where the the priest calls down the Holy Spirit. Now at the Easter vigil, he actually dips the candle into the water while he makes this prayer. At the uh, baptism of a child, he he puts his hand in the water, and one of the one of the fathers says that what's going on here is like just as the Holy Spirit descended upon the womb of the Blessed Mother, and Christ was formed in her womb. So the font is called the womb of the church, and the Holy Spirit descends upon the womb of the church on the water, and who's conceived in that womb but Christians. Ah, I like that. born out of it. Now, of oh, course, creation happened, right, when the God hovered over, over the waters in Genesis and made, made the Ooh, recreation. This. this is great. Oh, it is. It is. Again, it's... I wonder if David Fagerberg actually listens to this podcast. Hey, David. He, would, he would hear his name a lot. Here's another uh, uh, observation that he has. is, You know, when you hear the blessing of the baptismal water, it talks, like you said, about the Holy Spirit over the waters of creation, and it talks about the waters of the flood and the waters of the Red Sea and the waters of the Jordan. 
the water that Jesus was baptized in, the water that flowed from Christ's side, and what uh, David Fagerberg would say is all of the water in salvation history is uh, flowing downhill until it starts to pool up in the baptismal font. Ooh, I and love so that. so that water that Azalee goes through or anybody goes through is the sources of that or all of this water throughout salvation history. One more, and then we'll go to the next one. Uh, maybe I've said this one before, too, but this is from uh, the church father Tertullian, who was from what, like modern-day Libya or Tunisia or something like that in northern Africa. So wrote an early uh, uh, treatise on baptism, he says, you know this, uh, what is it called, an acronym, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior? Mm-hmm. S- spells what? Ictus. Ictus, and that's the word for? Fish. For fish. So Tertullian says that we are all born as little fishes in the font after the example of our big fish. Uh-huh. So you become a little icti or whatever sardine. So you become a little fish in the font, and you become a Christian after the example. How is this an, a, an update from the old one? It's not. It's not. not. Yeah, so, not, update's the wrong word. Yeah, no, no, no. I think what, in many cases, when these books come out, right, and even over the last five years, there's been a new rite of confirmation, a new rite for the dedication of a church and altar, a new rite of exorcism. They're working on a new rite of, of RCIA. And some of these books have greater or lesser changes, but each time a book comes out is an occasion to look at it again with fresh eyes and as I'm doing these workshops with other people in the Diocese of La Crosse, we're trying to take an occasion to say, let's just, this is very John Paul II, let's take a re-examination of the book and then examine our consciences to see how well or how poorly we're celebrating this. Do we begin at the door? Is the water that we're using good and beautiful? Are we incorporating all of these processions? Right? Because this is, what, this is the mind of the council to, to do these things. All right, let me just give you a couple more and we'll wrap this up. Number four. Right. Enough time? Number four. Four, 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 you guys. All right, the white garment, the white garment. So this is St. Ambrose. So mystagogical catechesis usually happened after the fact. So people would walk into this, you know, baptistry and they wouldn't know what was going to happen, mm. right? And then mystagogy would say, all right, let's get together in a couple of days and I'm going to explain to you neophytes all this stuff that happened to you that night. Sounds like okay. the third degree initiation for the Knights of Columbus. I was just going to say that. Which they got no, rid of. Not, it's not secret anymore. Yeah, no. it's not secret yeah. anymore. Oh, well. Anyway. Okay, so this is St. Uh, Ambrose talking to his neophytes about what they experienced uh, earlier. At Little plants. Isn't that what neophyte means? Little plant? Uh, That's what uh, the main character did in the movie The Matrix, Neo. I don't know what uh, uh, fight, the fight part I think it is. Is it? Okay. Little plants. Cool. Uh, Ambrose says, you, neophytes, little plants, uh, were to approach the altar after your baptism. You began to draw near, and the angels looked down and saw you coming. They saw the human, natural human state until recently soiled with the gloom and squalor of sin, mm. now suddenly shine out brilliantly. Mm. This led them to say, who is this coming up from the wilderness in white? The angels stand in, and marvel. Yeah. Okay? So this is the idea of the white garment that's put on the child after So baptism. they shouldn't be already wearing white. Yeah, so that's one of the things is, notice what Ambrose says is, until recently stained with the squalor of sin and death. So you want to bring your child to the church in a stained garment. Spaghetti stains. <laughs> yeah. Spaghetti stains, that's right. Then you baptize them. Nasty old onesie and things like that. No, but that's true. Again, if... 
If we want to implement the vision of the council, where the sanctification of the man is signified by signs perceptible to the senses, then that means that we need to make sure that the signs that the right is using is doing their efficacious best. So is the actual recommendation now, don't bring your baby to baptism in the baptismal garment, but put it on afterward? Yes. Okay. And it always has been. Right, so it says uh, uh, a white garment. This is after the, the kid comes up out of the font. "Quote: A white garment is placed on the child." We took at that point. We took uh, part of Kim's wedding dress and had it sewed into is like a right? liturgical, like a baptismal bib. Uh-huh. And so that's the white garment, and then we had embroidered like a, a crucifix on it. Huh. And so nice. then we—that's what we put on the child after baptism. It is desirable, it says, that the family itself provide the garment. There we go. Yeah. See, and sometimes, not all families have this, and so parishes provide them. But if the parish is going to provide one, I mean, you should see some of these silly little... They're like felt. Uh, yeah, they're like, they're like a bib you would it's get. It's like a red some, lobster bib. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and again, that, that's an efficacious sign that this child is supposed to be... He's supposed to give up his life to keep this unstained until he meets Christ again for this thing, hmm. right? So again, uh, you know, we want the signs to signify an effect. And I think some of the Eastern churches, the babies are baptized naked, right? So it's yeah. not a question of what kind of clothes they come in with. They're baptized no clothes, right? Then they get in their, their birthday bapt- suit. Their baptismal yeah. garment is, becomes their real clothes after that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but again... Uh, whether the, ba- whether the baby is baptized uh, naked or with a diaper or onesie, the white garment is a post-baptismal garment. All right. All right. One more. Uh, just about number the five, candle. Number five. Five, five, five. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. So this is this prayer of uh, epiclesis I was talking about before. Yeah. When, what does uh, that mean again? It uh, means the calling down of the Holy Spirit. So the priest says, may the power of the Holy Spirit, O Lord, we pray, come down through your Son into the fullness of this font so that all who have been buried with Christ by baptism into death may rise again to new life with him. And so, as I said, uh, that same text is used at the Easter vigil while the priest is lowering the candle into the font. And I mentioned one of the explanations of that before. It's an epiclesis, the Holy Spirit, coming upon the womb of the church to conceive Christians in Mm -hmm. that font. Uh, but the thing about sacramental signs and symbols is they are, I think the word is polyvalent. They can mean many, many different things. things. And another um, meaning of the candle is it's not simply this epiclesis of the Holy Spirit, but it's like a pillar of fire. So again, think about you've got this pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire and Moses and the chosen people being pursued by the devil right up to the water's edge. And this is, again, how just one of the church fathers speaks about that. That's what's happening now at the baptism of your baby. Mm-hmm. And who's going to go through that water first? The pillar of fire. So that's what's happening when the, when the priest says that prayer. The pillar of fire goes in through the water, and then the baby and the infant will go in after that to be um, victorious wow. on the other that's side. That's awesome. It is awesome. And then after that, the Paschal candle lights a little baptismal candle, and there's a procession back to either the altar or the place in the pew where the family's going to wait. But usually what happens, tell me if this is true, Jesse, the candle gets lit, and it's given to the Father, the Godfather, and there's some prayer that says something like, 
be sure to keep this candle burning brightly until the Son of God reappear, uh, reappears. Right. So it's it's based off of this text of the the wise, <coughs> the wise and the foolish uh, virgins. Okay. So you want to have keep that candle lit till the bridegroom appears. So the priest gives the lit candle to you and he says his prayer and then what happens? <coughs> they cough on it. Oh, no. They blow it out. They blow it out right away. So keep it burning brightly. Okay. <laughs> so what uh, some pa- lit a light up. What so- one pastor suggested is uh, give them a, a candle holder, to, at least to keep the candle burning brightly until the end of the Mass or until mm-hmm. the end of the ceremony. But in each of these instances, the doors, the processions, the water, the font, the garment, the candle, is, you know, if these are minimized or eliminated or replaced with other things uh, of our own creative thinking, then what happens is this point of meeting and encounter and joining in the Paschal Mystery of Christ is weakened and dimmed. And who suffers from this is, you know, the children and their families. So follow the rites. Do the right right. Do the right thing. And uh, the church will be better for it. All right. Hear that? Bring out the fullness. And bring bring out out the the liturgy questions. Let's answer one. Mm Mm-hmm. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right. This week, we have a question from Norm. Does he want to know some liturgical norms? <laughs> we could call him liturgical norm. Oh, Hi, oh, liturgical oh. norm. <laughs> I love this. Let's keep going. Let's yeah. keep going with that. Let's not even answer his question. Okay. If you have a lit- He's probably <laughs> stopped listening by now. <laughs> yeah, sorry. sorry, Norm. Sorry, Norm. Sorry, unliturgical norm. Norm. That's what we should have all said. Yeah. Buddy. Liturgical oh. norm. Okay. All right. Norm says, I live in a diocese in the upper Midwest in a city with several parishes. At one of the parishes, the priests regularly place a glass cruet containing the wine on the corporal alongside the wafers. The priest then prays the consecration and Eucharistic prayers over the communion elements. After the sign of peace, the EMHCs then bring three or four chalices from the credence table and place them on the altar. The priest then pours the consecrated element from the cruet into each of the chalices before going on to the Agnus Dei. This has always struck me as odd and quite irreverent, especially considering the name of the church. I've never understood why the chalices were not on the altar from the start like they are with every other parish. So my question is, is this a valid and or licit way of consecrating the precious blood during the Mass? This used to be fairly common, and now it's not. Now it's not. What do you say, Chris? Yeah. It used to be common maybe because, you know, you have this fracturing of the Eucharistic bread at this time, and was this maybe something parallel going on with the, not really the fracturing of wine, but the... The breaking of the blood. 
maybe something like that. But you're right, it was very common. Uh, but there was an encyclical by John Paul II, I think in 2002, maybe 2003, called Ecclesiae de Eucharistia, mm. uh, the church uh, from the Eucharist. And he lays out this very beautiful theology of the relationship between uh, the church and the Eucharist. And near the end, he says, I'm calling upon the competent uh, Vatican dicasteries to write a document on things to be done and avoided uh, with regard to the celebration of the Mass and surrounding the Eucharist. And as uh, we know about norms, generally speaking, generally speaking, Dennis, norms say, do this, do that do this, and rarely do they say what not to do. This is an exception, though, because the document that was written is called Redemptionis Sacramentum, on things to be done and avoided mm-hmm. in the celebration of the Eucharist. And when that negative is put in, like, this does not happen, or you, this is abrogated, usually it means something was happening that they're trying to correct. Right. And so in 2004, this document came out from the Congregation for Divine Worship, and this is what, uh, this is what it says at number 106. It says... The pouring of the blood of Christ after the consecration from one vessel to another is completely to be avoided, lest anything should happen that would be to the detriment of so great a mystery. Never to be used for containing the blood of the Lord are flagons, bowls, or other vessels that are not fully in accord with the established norm. So that's from 2004. This then found its way into the current Roman Missal because the front matter of the Missal contains the general instruction of the Roman Missal, the general norms for liturgical year and the general Roman calendar, and the norms for the distribution and reception of communion of both kinds in the Diocese of the United States of America. Uh, <laughs> it says it's a at number 36, if one chalice is not sufficient for Holy Communion to be distributed under both kinds to the priest, concelebrants, or Christ faithful, several chalices are placed on a corporal on the altar at a, in an appropriate place filled with wine. It is praiseworthy that the main chalice be larger than the other chalice prepared for distribution. So this is at the preparation of the gifts, not after the consecration has taken place. So, yeah, what... Uh, Norm and what we've recognized is that had been a practice, but now it is rather clearly and emphatically um, no longer to be the practice. So consecration of the precious blood should happen in a chalice, typically. In a chalice. So valid, but illicit. Valid, but but illicit. illicit. Like our sophomore band, Dennis. Valid, Valid, but illicit. Yeah. So 16 years in the making, the changing of this rule. Pastors, catch up, read up. (laughs) Absolutely. All right, Norm, I hope this norm Norm. was good for you. And if you have a question about liturgical norms or just a guy named Norm who likes liturgy, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys or tweet Dennis at DMAC Supertaster tastes more than you do. Or send all your Bitcoins to Chris at Ooh, Bitcoins, those sound nice. (laughs) God, you're so weird. Should I have a Bitcoin piggy bank? No, it doesn't exist. Yeah, keep it in the safe in the basement. Yeah, absolutely. They're not really coins? All right, thank Thank you, you and God God bless. bless. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College.